My name is Arianna Barnes and I'm a second sixth pupil at 23ES. I'm going to provide a practical guide to claims of sexual harassment in the workplace. And it will cover both the complainant and the respondent perspectives. And I'm going to go through the stages of a claim, starting chronologically with what employers should be advised to have in place at the start of any claim, which it all starts with the alleged incident, what should be in place at that time, and also what a complainant should be advised to do if they are subjected to harassment. Then taking it through to pursuing or defending a claim, and then finally unpacking what actually needs to be established to have a successful claim for sexual harassment in the workplace. To put that all in context though, I'm going to start with an overview of what exactly sexual harassment is from an employment law perspective. And the first place to look is section 26.2 of the Equality Act 2010. A person harasses a complainant if they engage in unwanted conduct of a sexual nature and the conduct has the purpose or effect of either violating the complainant's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the complainant. It's important to note that it's different from sex harassment which involves unwanted conduct related to a relevant protected characteristic, namely sex. The next provision to consider is section 26.4 and this provides that in deciding whether conduct has the effect just referred to, the tribunal must take into account three things. The first being the complainant's perception, the second being the other circumstances of the case and the third being whether it was reasonable for the conduct to have the effect just referred to. The third provision to note is section 40, which confirms that an employer must not, in relation to their employment, harass a person who is an employee or who has applied to that employer for employment. The fourth provision that brings us to the start of our chronology is section 109 of the Equalities Act which essentially establishes that an employer will be vicariously liable for an act done by its employee. But it also provides a defence in subsection 4, referred to as the statutory defence. Essentially, this is in proceedings against a harasser's employer in respect of anything alleged to have been done by the harasser in the course of the harasser's employment, it is a defence for the harasser's employer to show that they took all reasonable steps to prevent the harasser from doing that thing or from doing anything of that description. Turning now to stage one in the lifetime of a claim, namely the incident or incidents happening, and the question of what a respondent should be advised to have in place. The requirement specifically states, in relation to the statutory defence, 
that the employer should have taken all reasonable steps to prevent the harasser from doing what they did. And in reality, this is a high threshold. Employers should consider, amongst other things, having policies in place which are regularly reviewed, having an investigation procedure, having ways and policies to assess the level of seriousness so as to consider whether an incident requires police involvement, for example, if it is amounting to potential sexual assault, or whether it can be dealt with by way of the employer's disciplinary procedure. There should be a mechanism for reporting and confidentiality within that process. Training is also important as well, and there should be a record of the training. The training should be provided to as many people as possible. All too often, organisations only train managers, but the wider the training can be implemented, the better the chance the employer will have at establishing the statutory defence. Infrequent or ineffective training will be insufficient. In the case of Allaire UK Limited versus Mr Glennon, that's from 2021 UK EAT 003120, it was held that the tribunal was entitled to conclude that the training had become stale and required refreshing, and so the employer could not rely on the statutory defence. In that case, the training had been delivered over a year before the harassment, incidents had clearly arisen despite the training, and managers had failed to report the comments when they had become aware of them despite the training. Aside from seeking to invoke the statutory defence, generally efforts should be made to prevent sexual harassment allegations arising because ultimately they are bad for business and it's important to remember that details may end up online. In terms of what a claimant should be advised to do, they should be advised to keep notes, keep a diary, keep contemporaneous notes so that these can be provided as part of disclosure. They should report incidents through the relevant channels, even reporting the incident to the police if it is considered that it might, for example, be sexual assault. The claimant should establish who witnessed the harassment if anyone, and ask them whether they would complete a witness statement for them. Statutory questionnaires were repealed in April 2014, but in any event a non-statutory questionnaire could still be utilised, and they may give the tribunal an insight into how seriously the employer takes their duties. Moving now to stage two and a consideration of the procedure of bringing or defending an employment tribunal claim and what a claimant should be advised to do. Legal representatives should consider how and when to bring the claim. Section 1231 of the Equality Act 2010 provides that a claim must normally be submitted before the end of the period of three months starting with the date of the Act which the complaint relates. This time period can be extended 
Firstly, by participating in the ACAS early reconciliation process. And it's important to note that sexual harassment claims are not exempt from this process. Secondly, conduct may extend over a period of time. Such conduct is to be treated as done at the end of the period. So as long as the last act is in time, the whole series of acts may also be held to be in time. Consideration should be had of whether there was a continuing situation. In the case of Veolia Environmental Services UK versus Mr Gums, that's from 2014, UK EAT 048712, there were two acts that were two years apart. It was held that the tribunal did not make any error when it relied on the fact that the same person was involved in both incidents in relation to limitation. It was held that it was open to the Employment Tribunal to find that it, that it was a continuing situation. As a final fallback, time can be extended by such period as the Tribunal considers just and equitable. It is a broader discretion than the not reasonably practicable test for unfair dismissal claims. It is a question of fact and judgment. It can be useful to include reference to any reason for any delay in witness evidence and the tribunal will weigh up ultimately the prejudice caused to both sides when deciding whether it can extend time. Consideration should also be had as to who the respondent should be to the claim. A claim can be brought against the harasser as a second respondent to the claim. Remedies should also be considered, which can range from injury to feelings to recommendations that a respondent take specified steps for the purpose of reducing the adverse effect on the complainant of any matter to which the proceedings relate. Ensure that there is evidence to back up the remedies, whether by contemporaneous notes or as part of the claimant's witness statement. Legal representatives should consider at an early stage whether privacy or vulnerability is an issue. The Presidential Guidance on Vulnerable Parties and Witnesses provides that this should be considered at an early stage and includes examples of measures that could be put in place to assist a complainant, including pre-recorded evidence, examination of a witness through an intermediary, evidence by video, screens, interpreters, waiting rooms, timetabling including timetabling for breaks, anonymity orders and reporting restriction orders. In terms of what a respondent should do, they should ensure that they conduct an investigation if one has not already been conducted and consider whether the statutory defence can be utilised. They should seek disclosure from the complainant of any contemporaneous notes to establish the strength of the evidence against them. Along with their legal representatives, respondents should consider admissions and settlement.
Ultimately, it is a commercial decision often as to whether to settle a claim or not. And this involves weighing up the cost of management time and expense of lawyers to the end of trial with the damages the complainant is seeking, which can be established by a schedule of loss, which should be requested if it's not already been provided. This also needs to be balanced against the likelihood of the complainant obtaining all the damages that they are seeking, which, if disclosure has been forthcoming, should be, be able to be measured. In terms of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, it is open for a respondent to use such agreements, but respondents should proceed with extreme caution. They should not be used as standard, and if they are used, they need to ensure that they are actually enforceable. For example, NDAs cannot prevent anyone from reporting an offence or cooperating with a criminal investigation or other legal processes. Respondents should consider whether a deposit order could be applied for. In reality, it is difficult to strike out a claim in the Employment Tribunal, particularly a claim involving an allegation of sexual harassment, as they are often determined by witness evidence, which naturally needs to be tested at a final hearing. A deposit order can be a useful alternative, which may ultimately lead to strikeout and or a costs order. These are dealt with at Rule 39 of the Employment Tribunal Rules. Deposit orders will be considered at a preliminary hearing, either on a party's application or on the Tribunal's own volition. The provisions will be engaged if the Tribunal considers that any specific allegation or argument in a claim or response has little reasonable prospect of success. If engaged, the Tribunal can make an order requiring the relevant party to pay a deposit to the Tribunal as a condition of being permitted to continue to advance that allegation or argument. Again, to obtain an order may be difficult, especially in a case of sexual harassment where there is reliance on witness evidence. The final stage to consider is success or failure at trial and what needs to be established to succeed at trial. There are two really useful sources for both claimants and respondents and the tribunal. The first being the Equality and Human Rights Commission's technical guidance on sexual harassment and harassment at work. The second being the Equality and Human Rights Commission's Employment Statutory Code of Practice which the court and the employment tribunals are obliged to take into account when considering claims under the Equality Act 2010. In terms of unwanted conduct, this essentially means unwelcome or uninvited conduct. It is not necessary for the complainant to have objected to the conduct before it is then deemed unwanted. A single incident can be enough. Conduct may become unwanted as the relationship between the parties changes, for example, when a consensual relationship ends.
Paragraph 2.20 of the EHRC guidance provides conduct of a sexual nature includes a wide range of behaviours such as sexual comments or jokes, displaying sexually graphic pictures, posters or photos, suggestive looks, staring or leering, propositions and sexual advances, making promises in return for sexual favours, sexual gestures, intrusive questions about a person's private or sex life or a person discussing their own sex life, sexual posts or contact on social media, spreading sexual rumours about a person, sending sexually explicit emails or text messages and unwelcome touching, hugging, massaging or kissing. If it is established that the conduct has the requisite purpose, then there is no need to consider if it had that effect and the reasonableness of the complainant's perception is not relevant either. If the requisite purpose cannot be established, then the effect of the conduct must be established by looking at the factors in section 26.4. The first being the complainant's perception, and this is their subjective viewpoint which should be considered. The second being the relevant circumstances of the case and the EHRC code at paragraph 7.18b advises that this could include the personal circumstances of the complainant, including their health, mental health, mental capacity, cultural norms or previous experience of harassment. Consideration should be had as to the environment in which the conduct takes place. For example, whether the harasser is in a superior position or a position of power in relation to the complainant. And thirdly, the tribunal will look at the reasonableness of the effect. And this is an objective test. The tribunal is unlikely to find that unwanted conduct had the required effect if it considers that the complainant was hypersensitive and that any other reasonable person subjected to the same conduct would not have been offended. In terms of the actual purpose or effect, it is possible that one act may violate the complainant's dignity and create an, an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the compl complainant. Equally, it's possible that it may do one but not the other. It's a, decision, it's a decision of fact for the tribunal and context is all important. Environment in this context means a state of affairs which may be created by one act but the effects must be longer in duration. And in fact a swift apology may terminate the duration of an, any act in the appropriate circumstances. If there's no enduring effect, all is not lost, as the act could violate the complainant's dignity in the moment, in any event. That was my practical guide to claims of sexual harassment in the workplace. Thanks for listening. Please feel free to get in touch with any questions.